0: You're listening to Asia-Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And
1: I'm John Lee. Artificial intelligence, its rapid emergence, has shaken up the tech world with eye-popping potentials to change the way we work, live, and do
0: business. From chips to the cloud and from data centers to chatbots, AI is already plowing ahead, opening up a world of possibilities, but also prompting some to wave the caution flag.
1: Some estimates value AI's business opportunity in the billions and trillions, but what are the risks? And can the AI genie deliver on the hype?
2: As we start moving more towards AI processing, Worst case scenario, by 2030, if things aren't done correctly and there aren't any energy efficiency models that are implemented, it could account for 10% of all of global energy production.
0: Let's bring in Wu Jin Ho, Senior Tech Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Wu Jin, welcome.
2: Hey, Tom, thanks for having me on. Hi, John, how are you? Hi, Wu Jin.
1: Woo Jin, ChatGPT sparked off huge excitement on artificial intelligence is this hype real, and
2: how big is this market opportunity? I do think the hype is real. I think uh, this is very much unlike the metaverse. This is something that uh, can increase the productivity for people, and and this is why we're starting to see a lot of real investment going in by the cloud providers like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and and Meta on the U.S. side.
1: And how big is the market opportunity? Do you believe?
2: It's still unclear. Right, Uh, because we can look at it in multiple different facets. There's an infrastructure side of the ledger, and there's also a services side of the ledger. We do know that hundreds of millions of dollars have already been invested in it. Uh, Right now, we're not seeing much revenue. But if they can start producing revenue or make it into a, a revenue generating opportunity from a services side, we're talking about the scopes of hundreds of billions and possibly into trillions.
0: Wu Jin-ho, you talked about how you believe the hype around AI is real. Can we dive down a little deeper into that? What are we overlooking or what are we underestimating in terms of the potential, the power and the risk?
2: Sure. So think about how we're using AI today. It's more for efficiency gains. And I think we just started to tap into what we can do with AI. Think about what AI can do, what ChatGPT and other AI engines can do like it. It can tap into multiple different databases and come out with an output that uh, would probably happen in split seconds that uh, could have happened in hours, days, or months. Right. So th- we're talking about some massive productivity gains just from the use of AI if it's done and used properly.
0: Is it an overstatement to say that AI represents a quantum leap in the evolution of tech?
2: Still unclear if that's going to be the case, right? But it does seem as if it's a step function change in terms of tech, much like what we saw on the internet uh, back in the early 90s. And once people learn how to use AI and the AI tools uh, effectively, you'll see those productivity gains, potentially.
1: Which, which companies do you believe stand to benefit from this trend?
2: Well, we're already starting to see some of the early beneficiaries. It's Right now, it's mainly hardware. NVIDIA is the first company that comes to mind, clearly. They manufacture or produce the GPUs. But there's also the compute processing side, which uh, Intel, as well as AMD. And then you have some of the networking players, like Arista Networks, and networking chip guys like Broadcom. Uh, that uh, produce chips to help support the AI uh, side.
1: And how much computer power does AI require? For example, if we ask a question to Google search, uh, a traditional search versus a say, an AI powered search like chat GBT, can you give us some sense of how much data and searching is required?
2: So if we think about the compute power that's needed right now, you need the highest available processor and processor speed. Now, there are two levels Of compute that we need to think about. First is actual on the compute processing side, and that's where Intel and AMD come in. And think about it in the scope of 10 to 100 times the compute power to um, process all of the information that's coming through those servers, right? Now we're talking about the GPUs, which NVIDIA offers. The cloud guys just can't get their hands or enough GPUs to support what they want to do on AI. We're talking about thousands and tens of thousands of GPU chips and GPU line cars that they want to support. So we're talking about a lot of processing power It's necessary just to do some high-end AI functions relative to general cloud computing functions.
0: And Wu Jin-ho, what constraints do those power concerns impose upon AI and its potential?
2: Well, that's a challenge here, right? Uh, When we're starting about high-powered compute. Uh, we're talking about a lot of energy that's being used and dissipated coming out of these servers and these data centers. Let me give you a stat. Um, All the data centers owned by the clouds, they generate or or use up roughly, consume about 3% of all of the energy that's being produced globally. And as we start uh, moving more towards AI processing, because they are uh, uh, an energy suck, that could potentially continue to increase the energy consumption. Worst case scenario by 2030, if things aren't done correctly and there aren't any energy efficiency um, models that are implemented, it could account for 10% of all of global energy production. We're talking about the cloud guys.
1: Woojin, this sounds like a potential environmental nightmare.
2: Well, for some of the Bloomberg listeners uh, who are very ESG conscious, it is really a potential nightmare for the cloud guys
1: could you draw analogies to say cryptocurrency i read this stat that bitcoin usage consumes more power than some mid-sized countries in the world
2: yeah if you think about the bitcoin ecosystem it's still a fairly concentrated ecosystem if you think about it there are some bitcoin farms that uh, try to uh, build out their own servers But now we're talking about larger cloud guys that are trying to build AI farms at a larger and grander scale than than a Bitcoin server farm. We're not talking about thousands of people that are trying to mine Bitcoin. We're talking about millions and hundreds of millions of people to billions of people trying to access AI data coming out of the cloud. And the cloud guys are trying to uh, support that. I, I do believe that the hyperscale cloud providers are cognizant of that, and they are trying to implement new methodologies to reduce the power consumption. But that's going to come over time.
0: And Wu Jin-ho, a lot of those questions about AI and chat GPT and the power that they require, you know, the U.S. is not the only country that wants to pursue a piece of this technology. China is also very interested, and you have enough power constraints in China right now, where that could be an issue for them if they go down this road.
2: And China has two challenges. One, uh, first is the access to the latest generation of chips. And one of the advantages of getting the latest generation of chips is less power consumption because a smaller geometry chip doesn't consume as much power and it's much more efficient. And two, you need fewer of those boxes as the AI engine becomes more efficient. The issue is, is that China will not have access to the latest generations of chips. Actually, NVIDIA offers a, a China version of their GPUs, uh, whether it's A as in Apple 800 or the new H as in Henry 800, uh, which is the China version of those chips. They're just not going to be as efficient and power efficient as China. So to compensate what China may need to do, is to build more of these server and, and these AI clusters. And that's just going to consume much more power. The power needs are just going to increase and grow. And, and to your point, Tom, you know, China has been a power starved. We've seen the blackouts during 21 and 22. And if that's going to be an issue, the lights might go out because they really want to push the AI engine.
0: You can see a world of clashing imperatives emerging because upwards of two-thirds of China's power is generated today by coal, which is, of course, a fossil fuel. So you have that factor coming in as well.
2: Right. And that's exactly the point, right? It's like, You have to pick the better of two evils. Do you wanna really start pushing the AI engine just to compete with the rest of the world, or the US in this case? Or do you want to manage and conserve energy to support factories on on a day-to-day basis?
1: Would you just continue from what you were saying? US regulations are prohibiting certain chips to be exported to China, correct?
2: That is correct. So there are some sanctions that, that the US imposed on US technologies that they cannot ship to China. NVIDIA is one of those companies and they actually line itemed a couple of uh, NVIDIA chips, uh, NVIDIA AI chips, the A100 and above. So uh, what the US is essentially trying to do is slow down the progress of uh, China's AI development.
1: So China can still use certain NVIDIA chips. Uh, I think you mentioned the A800. Can you compare the a 800 to say the most advanced, the A100 or the H100?
2: Sure. So some of the notes that I looked at uh, in preparation for this, it, it just seems as if a lot of it is the interconnect communications between the graphics cards, right? That's one. So speed and latency is very key for, for AI and also with the processing power of those chips as well. So it's not going to be as powerful. And that's one of the reasons why China may need to have more servers and more GPUs to compensate for the less processing power.
1: So how many years or generations behind would China be in terms of, you know, the usage of these Nvidia chips?
2: Well, if you want to add capacity, they'll try to keep up as close as possible my sense is and if we think about the power dynamic as well the energy consumption dynamic as well they could be anywhere between three to five years behind in terms of the chips itself
0: you're listening to asia centric from bloomberg intelligence by the way if you like what you hear and we hope you do please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may be listening to us. Of course, more stars are better. Your feedback matters, and we love hearing from our listeners. Our guest is Wu Jin Ho, Senior Tech Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Wu Jin, the Financial Times, ran an opinion piece in early May which rather boldly declared that Apple is a in their words, Chinese company. They argue that Apple is so deeply embedded in China that rapid decoupling becomes a rather tall order. How do you see that unfolding? Is China going to let Apple just go quietly? What are the risks to Apple of moving out of China and moving their manufacturing to India and elsewhere?
2: That's a fantastic question, Tom. So if we think about what's happening in with Apple in particular, as well as uh, some of the geopolitical pressure that the U.S. has started to press on uh, U.S. manufacturers, it seems as if Apple has been moving along quite rapidly. We actually did a lot of work on the China supply chain prior to that FT, and, and initially we thought it was about... Um, over 99 percent of Apple smartphones were manufactured in China. Now I'm going to give a nod to one of my colleagues, uh, Steven Seng, based out of Taiwan. We did a, another layer of analysis on the China supply chain, and it seems as if the Chinese manufacturers and the assemblers have really started to move out of their operations to de-risk their geographical exposure. It seems as if it's more like close to 35 percent of the factories are in China now. And they've started to move out to the Asian, right? Whether it's Vietnam and Malaysia, and as well as uh, a little bit more in India. Now, China is still going to be a mainstay. I still argue that there's still a lot of manufacturing expertise in China because of their multiple years of smartphone development and smartphone component development. But at the end of the day, the assembly part of it and some of the component part of it, not only by the US manufacturers But the Chinese manufacturers Mm. have started to move things out as well because they recognize the geopolitical risk that some of the U.S. sanctions may potentially hold going forward.
1: So currently, 98% of iPhones are assembled in China. What's your expectations for, say, like five years out?
2: Well, 98% of the smartphones have actually shifted, uh, has accelerated a lot faster, and it could be closer to 40%, you know, in 2030 or even 30% in 2030 in China as these assembly manufacturing sites move into Vietnam, Malaysia, and and India. Now, I know India has been a hot button topic recently, because uh, Apple has been propping up some manufacturing facilities out there as well. And um, India has its advantages, but uh, they still have to ramp up in terms of the infrastructure.
0: Is India ready for that kind of a challenge technologically?
2: Technologically, there is engineering expertise. Um, The one thing that India still needs to build up that that China has and India lacks is an ecosystem, right? And that will take multiple years to build up. The other thing is the infrastructure where they lag in infrastructure uh, is on the communication side. Uh, If I look at the speedtest.net or Ookla data, uh, they rank 88th in the world in terms of high-speed fiber optic communications. But if we compare it to where China and the U.S., they're 4th and 8th in, in the world. And, and I want to go back in history. Where, how did China get to where it is today as a major manufacturing hub? One of the things that China did starting in 2020 was to lay out the fiber optic networks. And they represent roughly one-third of all fiber optic investments globally, one-third. And once you get the communication networks now down, then you can start the digital transformation necessary for everything else uh, that is touched technologically, whether it's a manufacturing site, whether it's a consumer site, whether it's the internet and so on and so forth. India has yet to be there. And India will not get there until 2025, 2026.
0: So the fiber optic networks being laid down, that's the tipping point for where China stands today. Would you say that's the case or is that an overstatement?
2: No, I I think that China made the playbook. I think Korea made the playbook as well. India started to recognize that. And I would even say that US lags from uh, uh, fiber rollout and they're really starting to uh, uh, lay out fiber as well over the next three to five years uh, to really build up their digital infrastructure. And I do view fiber, I know that 5G is touted as the communication, but you cannot have wireless unless you have a wire to connect Mm. it back to a network. So fiber is the key tipping point for digital transformation success.
1: Ujin, can Apple effectively detangle from the China supply chain? Is there certain parts of the manufacturing supply chain that you just cannot get away from China in terms of manufacturing?
2: Well, there are several parts, um, quite frankly. If you look at some of the components uh, where China leads in, they lead in LCD panel, screen panel, we're starting to see that shift from Samsung and LG going into BOE, and that's mainly manufactured in China. Uh, If you see the display glass, that's manufactured in China. Some of the acoustics components manufactured in China. And um, one of the things that China smartly did over the last couple of years is to double down on legacy, more mundane chips, whether it's power management chips. If they can't get the advanced node chips that TSMC offers they're going to be the market winners for some of these legacy node chips and for every advanced node chip you will need quite a bit of legacy node content inside the iphones and apple just can't get away from that either
0: so the idea of apple decoupling completely from china you're saying that's probably not going to happen
2: uh, i don't think that's not only an apple statement i think that's a global electronic statement I, I think um The aspirations are there, but I do think that uh, China is going to be a lasting manufacturing partner over the long term.
1: Wojin, if I could circle back to artificial intelligence or AI, which Asian companies stand to benefit from this trend?
2: Well, let's start from the bottom up. It's going to be the server companies predominantly. They will be getting the, uh, the line, GPU line cards and chips from Nvidia and Intel and AMD, but it'll be a company, someone like a, a, an Inspir or a Lenovo or an H3C, those are the companies. But if we start moving up the chain on the services side, it's going to be someone like a, a Baidu or, or Tencent as they build out those AI services and try to offer it to the local economies and local regions.
1: And what about on the hardware side?
2: Well, on the hardware side, it's going to be Inspur, Lenovo, H3C. Um, as much as I want to say uh, someone like a Huawei uh, on the networking side, um, they're somewhat uh, negatively impacted because of the U.S. sanctions as well. They just don't have the access to the technologies on the networking side as uh, they'd hope. So, so if anyone's going to benefit from the networking side, it's probably going to be H3C.
1: And what about the Asian chip makers like uh, Taiwan Semi TSMC or Samsung electronics or SK
2: Hynix? So if we think about it from the chip maker front, AI needs a lot of advanced process nodes and TSMC is going to be the leading beneficiary right now because they make the five nanometer, seven nanometer and uh, in line for the threes and the two nanometers. And for AI workloads, you actually need a lot, a lot, a lot of memory. And if we think about SK Hynix and Samsung, not only on the DRAM side, but also on the NAND side, they are going to be the biggest beneficiary among the Asian technology providers.
0: Wu Jin-ho, could it be that we don't know what we don't know about AI and chat GPT and its potential? And how would you compare its emergence today with the way the internet emerged in the early to mid 1990s?
2: So there's a lot that we don't know, to your point, that we don't know going out 20, 30 years from now. Sure. uh, In terms of what ChatGP can do, how it'll evolve. If we think about what the early internet was in the 1990s, it was basic email, right? And then it evolved to very simple graphics, to virtual realities.
0: A clunkier version then of what it is today.
2: Exactly. a Much clunkier version. But if you think about what, what the internet actually provided back in the early 1990s, it created a whole vast of new services. We couldn't imagine a service like an Amazon or mm. an Uber or food delivery services like Deliveroo, let's just say, back then.
0: It's not just the technology, it's the way it's applied.
2: Exactly. I don't know how people are going to apply AI going forward. There are some scary aspects of it, in terms of the productivity gains of AI will lead to potential job losses, but it might be productivity gains that we can really leverage and there might be more jobs created as a result of that. So it's just, I don't know what's gonna happen in the next five, 10, 20, 30 years from now from the evolution of AI.
0: But those productivity gains could also bring with them investment opportunity.
2: Exactly. Right. economic growth it,
0: it, and all the things that go on with that
2: exactly it can actually be seeds to new industry it could be seeds to new technologies that ai was able to discover in the speed of years which would have been decades so it depends on how companies implement ai and how they leverage the technology. To really drive growth going forward, and I and I think every company. I, look, I understand that the cloud guys, whether it's either the U.S. or the Chinese, uh, on the China side, have gotten a lot of attention. But I know that a lot of corporates are trying to figure out new ways or ways to leverage AI for their own benefit, and we'll see what they do with it.
1: Well, Jin, there seems to be a lot of press on how AI can help with the search functions, like Google, you know, Microsoft. Do you see a point where people actually pay to have subscription to these services?
2: Um, Yes, but not for a search function. I do think that, again, going back to how AI evolves, I think there will be new services that may blossom out of AI that we'll be paying for Mm. going forward right? That's one of the, I guess, unknowns over the next three to five years on how to monetize AI, because there's a lot of investment that's going in. We're talking about billions of dollars of investment, whether it's on the infrastructure side of the software side or development time. But if it's going to create the efficiencies for the end user, they want to uh, really monetize that investment. And sooner or later, it's going to come. I just don't know what shape or form it's going to come in.
1: Sounds like you need a lot of investment to build out AI, and a lot of these investments being made by cloud providers. Can corporates get into the action as well?
2: That's a fantastic question, John. The way AI is structured, you just need a bunch of servers, a lot of memory, some GPU, right? That's a fairly, and software that sits on top of it. What the cloud guys are investing in right now is a large scale um, uh, AI engine that could support millions of people. I do think that the corporates can do this. I think there's a lot of interest in corporates building in-house. Traditional hardware vendors will be beneficiaries of it, like a Dell or an HPE on the US side, someone like an IBM on the US side. Again, uh, someone like an Inspiron Lenovo would be a beneficiary. Now, Why would a corporate want to build out their own AI infrastructure? Well, they could do one of two things. They can outsource it to the cloud guys, to the cloud providers, and the cloud providers offer it as AI as a service. And going back to your question about how do they monetize it, that would be one way of of monetizing it, right? But there's some challenges to that. And I think there was some recent news about Samsung leaking some data Mm. because some of their employees were using ChatGPT. We've seen Apple ban the use of ChatGPT internally as part of the development. So there are some inherent risks, especially if we're going to use AI with corporate IP, and they may want to build some of that in-house. Would it be cost-effective? It may not be, right? But the risks could be far greater than the investment itself. And then the reward could be far greater by building it inside as well.
0: Wu Jin, all this raises questions about regulation. The AI genie is out of the bottle. How do we rein it in? How do we channel its power to constructive purposes? How do you see that unfolding?
2: I think it's already starting to happen, Uh, especially on the U.S. side. We're starting to see the regulatory environment try to work with the cloud providers in terms of trying to rein it in. First of all, it's gonna take some time for the regulators to understand what it is and what it may mean to do. And the guidelines continue to change over time, primarily because the definition of what AI can do continues to change daily as well. I think the same thing is happening in Asia, but it's still too early on what those guidelines may be. And it's probably going to be on a region by region basis, much like what we're seeing on how countries are handling uh, data privacy laws for users on the internet.
0: Wu Jin Ho, it's been remarkable having you here. We covered a lot of ground, talking AI, chips, China, investment. And these are just the opening chapters in a story of exciting change and remarkable business opportunity. We look forward to staying in touch and hearing more of your insights. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Wu Jin. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong.
1: And I'm John Lee. This podcast was edited by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia Centric Podcast.